Father, we thank you that your word is living and powerful, that it penetrates and, and pierces right to where we need to be impacted. Um, we thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is, is inspired and that we can trust it. Lord, we're thankful that uh, your word is, is God-breathed. So we turn to it again. Uh, we're thankful that we're a family. Lord, we need to encourage each other, challenge each other. Uh, teach one another. We pray that uh, the summaries shared and then the questions asked would be uh, very helpful to us in, in walking the walk. So we trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I started out in Mark 14, and there was so much that happened inside of the passage, but wanted to just be brief here. The, what, the summary that we had, that we talked about, is that everyone has to make a decision about Jesus, was the theme that we carried through Mark 14. There were several people that we pointed out had made their decision about Jesus. The Pharisees were one. They had chosen to reject Jesus, even though they had seen who he was with his miracles and his teachings. Judas, one of the twelve disciples that was closest, chose the world and his own pride over Jesus. And even the disciples um, would be told that they would all desert Jesus, these people that were closest to him. But the highlight and the thing we spent the most time on was that there was this lady named Mary that made a decision about Jesus, that she was going to give up everything in regards to, to worldly wealth and, and whatever the world said was important, and she found herself at the feet of Jesus. And, and she held Jesus precious. She proved it by taking something incredibly costly and valuable and pouring it over the feet of Jesus and, and anoint, or over the head of Jesus. I'm sorry, and, and, and anointing him as her king and her lord. Um, people around they didn't like that. They didn't like that kind of commitment and that act of worship that she had. But she didn't care, and she loved her Savior so much that she worshipped him. And it was a beautiful picture of our decision that we need to make about Jesus, that he is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. He is our only place to go. So I went second. Um, I covered um, Mark 14, 32 through 65. This is the Garden of Gethsemane and the trial of Jesus. And I'll just give a really short recap like Benji did and just try to hit the highlights. Um, we find first Jesus going to the garden with his disciples and asking them to pray with him. Um, really, what I want you guys to take away from here is that Jesus was anguished, um, literally sweating blood, crying out to the Father, if this can pass for me, please let it pass. And then at the end, he is calm, he has resolve, he has accepted the Lord's will, and at no point did he go outside of the Father's will. Um, we cannot endure any hardship. We cannot endure everyday life in this fallen world without that prayer to God that can include, can this please stop God? It can include that. But we have to end all of our prayers with not my will, but your will. Next we see um, Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Um, and, and this is one of those amazing moments where something terrible is happening, but we can worship Jesus because of all the amazing things. Um, he's being arrested by cruel and evil men through someone who betrayed him to be handed over to um, legalistic um, conspirators who just want to kill him. Um, greedy men, evil men. And it's a sad moment, but through it we see Jesus Christ's glory 
and righteousness. So we find in John him them asking uh, or him asking them, "Whom do you seek?" And they answered, "Jesus of Nazareth." And he said, "I am, I am He." Is what some Bible says. It's actually ergo a me, which is I am, which is the name of God. And they all drop because it's God. Um, we find him saying, "I could call legions of angels." to fight if I wanted to, but this is so that the Lord's will can be fulfilled. This is very important. So when we read these, we should make sure that this leads us directly to worshiping Jesus Christ as God, um, as king of this world, as the sacrificial lamb for our sins. And next we find what I called the kangaroo court. Um, I explained in detail, if you were here, about the Jewish legal system and how it is easy to think, well, you know, this is a bad trial, this is a bad rap, but, um, but these are just men who are misunderstanding what's going on. That's not true at all. They actually misuse their own legal system. Almost every single law that they had about how trials were to be performed, they ignored purposefully just so that they could get this man killed. These were not men who were, men who were just misguided. They purposefully broke their own laws and God's laws that we find in Deuteronomy, just to kill this man that they were afraid of. So let's be clear here. This is not an accident. Uh, these are men who purposefully murdered a righteous man. And finally, we find at the end, Jesus proclaiming his identity. Up until now, he had never come out publicly saying, I am the Christ, the Son of God. He had said it to his disciples. He had said it in parables. But this is the first time that he's speaking to non-disciples saying, I am the Son of God. And what happens is they call him a blasphemer, and they tear their clothes, and they mock him, and they spit on him, and they beat him, um, and then um, and they bring him to Pilate. This is really, really important because, again, they're ignoring laws, but also um, they're using a truth saying uh, he's a blasphemer because he's the Son of God, but they're actually the ones blaspheming against him because he actually is the Son of God. And one final note on the trial, Jesus was tried unjustly, um, but when Christ returns, he will judge the world with justice and righteousness for all eternity. And this should give us hope. Um, This terrible, terrible thing should remind us that Jesus Christ will come and reign on the earth, and we will get to enjoy that with him. Um, So just a few things. Um, We need to remember that if our Lord Jesus Christ needed to, to wail and pray and um, beg God, then how much more when we're in hardships do we need to go before God and, and tell him honestly what our problems are and what our fears are? We need to remember that all of these things that are, that are going to happen, is they were all for our sake. Um, the Lord Jesus followed the will of the Father to death for us. And we should also remember not just Jesus on the cross, but Jesus in the garden. Um, as we read earlier, um, he was a man of sorrows. And we see that in the garden. Uh, Anguish, uh, bleeding through his pores. And we should remember that that's part of of this whole process. That's part of him preparing to die for our sins, to be the sin bearer. Thank you. So I had the third section, and that was Mark 14, verses 66 through Mark 15, 15. And we covered Peter's denial of Jesus. And we, before we even got to the scripture at hand, we looked at the prophecy that Jesus prophesied, saying, 
before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And we looked at the fact that Jesus said that Satan had demanded to sift not just Peter, but the disciples to sift them, to scatter them, which is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So we saw that Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times in the courtyard. We saw that uh, in the other gospel that it said that when Peter did it the third time, Jesus looked at him. And Peter remembered, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter went away broken. He went away broken. But if you remember, we pointed out in the other gospel that Jesus also predicted that Peter would be restored and he would be used to strengthen the other disciples. And we also remember that fact that Satan has no control in our lives except that which God allows him to have. So ultimately, if Satan is working in our lives through a trial or a trouble, God is still in control. God has Satan on a short leash. And then we looked at uh, Jesus before Pilate, and we saw that uh, that the chief priests had a uh, illegal trial, as Matthew had already described, and they bound Jesus and led him away, and presented him before Pilate. And Pilate asked him the question, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And he answered, "You have said so." He didn't shy away from uh, from answering that, but the Jews brought all kinds of false accusations against him, saying he says that we shouldn't pay taxes. When we looked back at Jesus' teaching, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And we also looked at the fact that Pilate, knowing or finding out through the trial that uh, he had been in the region uh, that that was under Herod's control, sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem. And we remember that Herod was the man who had killed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And so you had two men in one room. You had Herod, who had practiced no self-discipline, and the king of kings, who had practiced complete self-discipline. So you had a very good picture of the extremes. Herod, who only allowed John to be dead, or John to be killed because he had given in to some pervertedness and had promised a young girl anything up to half the kingdom. And she chose on her mother's behalf the head of John the Baptist. And you had the king of kings who was standing trial. And as we already said, the charges, they were, they were false. There was no reason in which Jesus should have died. And yet, Pilate wanting to make sure that there wasn't a riot, gave in to the Jews. He wanted to appease the crowd because he didn't want anything to go down on his watch. And so he said, I wash my hands of it. Here he is. As they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So that was my section. Thanks.
I had the second half of Mark 15, and it covered more of Jesus' suffering, his mockery, his death, and his burial. And I said there's a ton of ways to approach that topic, but I just chose a few. Uh, And I didn't mean to come off too arrogant. If I did, I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to be firm. So first I mentioned that Christ did suffer for righteousness' sake. And if the Christian doesn't, then the Christian isn't like Christ in that way. Uh, So in the positive, we can be like Christ when we work hard, when we go through a lot in order to be right before God, or when we endure temptations and don't sin, or when we suffer hard to cut things out of our life so that we don't dishonor God, or when we're mocked or made fun of for righteousness' sake. Acting like Christ brings honor to Christ, and we can make it our joy to suffer for righteousness' sake in order to be like him and honor him. Or in the negative, though, we can ignore the sufferings of Christ and not let them have any bearing on our life. Uh, But this doesn't bring honor to Christ. And if we run around practicing lawlessness, then it might not be true that Jesus really is our Lord. Uh, Because words are different than actions. And Jesus even warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. To the fakers who practice lawlessness, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So if it's lawlessness that we practice, And if it's lip service that we give to someone who isn't really our real Lord and our real hearts, then we have a real reason to really worry uh, that we might not enter that real kingdom of heaven. So I thought that was worth mentioning. Um, Some other things. Uh, I mentioned that during his suffering, the scourge, the mockery uh, of the soldiers, the fake crown, the fake robe, the fake bowing down, Jesus held his tongue. A lot of us have tempers. A lot of us demand that we be given the honor that we deserve. Jesus said he could have called down legions of angels uh, to vindicate him, uh, to stop it all, but he didn't. And so one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, but that day wasn't then, and Jesus waited on God. And so in application I said that when people don't give us the honor we deserve in life, the perspective is that God knows the truth. If he wants to, he'll honor you, vindicate you, take care of it in his timing because he cares for us and he really knows what's going on and we can trust him to do what's right. Some other thoughts, uh, the sufferings of Jesus during his life give us clarity about what to expect in our own Christian life and good company. We're told, like other people said, to cast our cares and our burdens on him who can sympathize with us. And sometimes we do forget, but we should remember that we're not the only one in all of history who has ever suffered um, for things. Jesus, in order to be right before God and to go where God wanted him, the cross, had to endure a lot, physical, mental, spiritual pain. And he was made a joke of in front of everybody else. And if you go through that, it's not a load that Jesus hasn't carried himself. So tell him about your worries. He wants you to cast your cares on him. He will listen. He does understand. And he can help. I talked about Simon of Cyrene, tapped on the shoulder with that Roman spear. Uh, And then uh, many think that Simon, his boys, and his wife all became followers of Christ. So my application there was, there are times when God will tap you on the shoulder and you might not like the direction that you're told to go or the people who tapped you. Um, But... Like Simon, you might get blessed. It might change the course of your life and your family's life. And so the perspective is 
Who's in charge? God is in charge. Who directs providence? God directs providence. Even sufferings. God brought good through the sufferings and the trial of Simon. And he can do the same for you. He even promises good to those who love him. I also talked about the soldiers at the cross. They didn't take home much from the cross. A couple pieces of clothes. No changed life. No savior. I said we act like the soldier sometimes. We don't carry much home from church when we're in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said of the soldiers, they don't know what they're doing, but we often do know when we're not paying attention. We talked about the contempt of the passerbys and the religious leaders. Uh, There were those then, and there are still those today who think that the cross of Christ is foolish and weak and unvictorious. But God tells us he's pleased to save those who do believe in the foolish message of the cross. They say, save yourself, come down from the cross, then we'll see and believe. They assumed it was weakness that held him there, but really it was his strength, his willingness to die for sinners, his love for us that kept him there. He wouldn't be our savior if he didn't stay on the cross. I talked about the darkness, three hours. At the end of it, Jesus says how he feels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If my one sin can cost me eternity in hell, I can't understand an innumerable number of sins, everybody sins on Jesus for three hours. So I just wonder at it, and I'm thankful that at the end of it, he says, it's finished, it's done, and I can believe it. And then we mentioned the veil of the temple, torn in two, symbolizes the way to God is now open. At one time it was shut, except through me, no one can come to the Father, now it's open. And you can come as often as you want. Within the Holy of Holies, God used to be hidden. But now the curtain's gone, man can freely come to see God, see what he's like, see Jesus, experience him. And finally, Joseph of Arimathea, he kept his secret belief in Christ hidden, but then God gave him an opportunity to claim Jesus. We can hide our belief in Jesus, but God will give us opportunity to claim him too. So those are the things that I tried to cover. Mark 16 wrapped up the book of Mark. And if you remember, the the theme of Mark was the suffering servant. Uh, The theme verse from Mark 10, where it says, Jesus uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Uh, As of the end of Mark 15, that was done. Uh, He was in the tomb. He had done the suffering. He had done the serving. He had taken on the penalty for sin. That was finished. It was finished, as he said. But then we get to Mark 16, and we realize that that all the work of salvation was done. There needed to be an exclamation point of power. There needed to be uh, one more act of dominance and victory. And that was the resurrection. And so in chapter 16, in the first eight verses... We're certain that those verses were a part of the original, uh, the original uh, manuscripts, so we take them as authoritative and strong, and we see a powerful explanation of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and what does 1 Corinthians 15 tell us about the resurrection? That that powerful rising from the dead puts the exclamation point and finishes the sentence of the work of salvation. 
First Corinthians 15 goes further and says, what if there was no resurrection? He says, then you should be pitied more than anyone because your hope is futile. It is finished, Jesus said. The payment for sin was done, but the resurrection was vital for capping off victory over sin and death and hell. And then we looked at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And you should look at it again this week if you get a chance. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection accomplished the victory. It accomplished the exclamation point. It sealed the deal that death, sin, and hell have been overcome. It's powerful. We talked about how we could talk on and on and on and and like so many of the other passages, you could just dig and dig and dig into the deep theology of the resurrection. Uh, A couple other things that were were there was the care of the uh, documentation that the resurrection really happened. Do you remember how we talked about the, the women that went to the tomb? Were they just gullible and okay, some guy sitting on a rock says it, so okay. No, they waited until there was verifiable evidence, until there was face-to-face confirmation that Jesus Christ is risen. And we said that that's, that's not necessarily doubt. There could have been doubt and others were challenged later for their doubt. But it didn't have to be doubt because there could have been a very um, keen care and uh, What would you say? Dedication to making sure they knew the facts and they knew the truth. And so we can see that the resurrection wasn't just this, oh, I guess someone said he's risen, so it must be. But it was a carefully laid out series of points of evidence to where a, a non-follower of Christ, a, a Jewish historian long after Jesus was not a follower of Jesus, would look back and say that the resurrection was the most accurately documented historical event of all time. We have a powerful, reasonable faith that's capped off with an exclamation point by the resurrection. And we can get excited about that. We can be uh, enthused about that. We talked about uh, the second half of Mark. What did we say about verses 9 through 20? We said that there's some debate whether these verses were part of the original language. We know and believe that the Holy Scripture is inspired in its original language. And so we wanted to be really careful that we don't buy into just anything that happens to be in one of the translations. So, so we went to the other passages, John 20, Luke 24, and we were able to see that, okay, in uh, truly inspired Word of God where there's no debate, we can see the same kind of teaching. And so that's why we went to John 20 and Luke 24. One quick, uh, powerful message that really hit my heart was from Luke 24. You had two disciples that were taught by Jesus for several hours. And at the end of it, they said, boy, didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't his words just pierce right through to where we are? And we talked a little bit about Hebrews 4 and the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than two-edged sword, any two-edged sword. And we said, are we going to be people who are deeply impacted by the Word of God? Are we going to allow it to pierce through to where we need to be? And are we going to then respond in fervent obedience? Um, To not confuse it, I would say, are we going to have 
full-fledged dedication to the Lord? Are we going to follow that challenge that Riley gave? That are we going to be men and women that just give lip service or are we going to give our wholehearted uh, following of Jesus Christ? One last um, part of it was we looked at John 20 and shortly after Jesus' resurrection, he went to those same disciples that had scattered, that had forsaken him, that had left him. And they were huddled, scared in a room with the door locked so that the Jewish leaders wouldn't find them and haul them off to, to do the same as what they did to Jesus. And Jesus appears to them. He appears in their midst. Now a side note was, don't miss the, the significance of that because Jesus' resurrected body was like any other resurrection that we had known. Remember Lazarus was resurrected, right? But he came waddling out in his grave clothes, right? It was his old body back. Jesus was resurrected, but it was a new body. It was a different body and yet similar. And so Jesus was not bound by having to walk through a door like you and I would need to be. And there was significance there. Jesus was able to be, find them and to be with them. And there was nothing that was going to stop them, him from getting to those disciples at their time of scared need. And Jesus is that for you. There's times where you feel alone, scared, isolated. Jesus is there with you. Riley uh, quoted Matthew 18 this morning about how where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there with us. In the context of, of some of the toughest times that a church could be going through, Jesus is with you. And then we wrapped up with three points. When Jesus appeared to those disciples, he offered three gifts to them. He offered a gift of peace. He offered a gift of uh, reassurance of the power that they would receive. And he then later reinforced your purpose, their purpose as a follower of Christ, and your purpose as a follower of Christ. The peace, he said, my peace I give to you. He said it twice to those scared disciples, and we see that in John 20. He said it twice. Why? Because it was so vital. And then we went on to look at some other passages that, that show that the peace comes through that powerful resurrection and the death and sacrifice, he offers peace with God. Ephesians 2. He offers peace with one another. Galatians 3. He offers even peace from this crazy world. In Colossians we saw that. That someday it's all going to be right. Someday all this nuts world around us is going to be made right and the craziness will be set in righteousness to honor God. And then finally, we talked about the peace that we'll enjoy through all eternity. And many of you have loved ones that, that knew Christ, that followed Christ, that had received Christ's work of salvation. And take heart, they're celebrating now with Jesus, experiencing much of that peace. So it's important that we understand that um, our faith is reasonable. It's well-documented. But more than anything, it's powerful. It's powerful. And the resurrection started that illustration. And then Jesus, when he's talking to those disciples, he breathed on them symbolically saying, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. God himself will live in you. And if you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And you have all that you need for life and godliness, as Peter says, because you have God himself in you. And so that is a, a reminder of the power 
that followers of Christ have. Be at peace. Understand the power. And then before Jesus goes into heaven, what did he give his disciples? He gave the Great Commission. He gave their purpose. Your purpose is to make disciples. And that starts here. Scripture teaches us to do good to those, especially to the household of faith. We're a family. We need to band together. We need to disciple one another, teach one another, empower one another. And then from here, we need to to go out and with that energy and with that support, we need to minister to this community in a way that, that has never been done before. We need to take any and every opportunity to impact. When the halls go to to Gavin's game this afternoon, I promise you they're going to be ready to impact the community for God. That's their purpose for being there. They've shared that. When someone else goes to the grocery store, will you have an impact? Will there be a friendliness, a love, a care, a genuineness that will offer maybe even an impact? We have so much opportunity and our purpose is to go into all the world and make disciples And so I'm challenged by that. I hope you're challenged by that. Um, Let's uh, turn now to your role in today. Hopefully something has sparked a question. Hopefully something has sparked a thought that uh, can be brought up. And then we'll pass the mic and make sure that we can start to to discuss that more. So I want to warn you, if you don't have questions, I have tons. So that should motivate you to uh, speak up. So let's get started with that. What thoughts are on your mind? What would you like more clarification on? Well, I had a... Oh, yes. Thank you, Dan. That's a that's a great question. And is there anyone in particular you're asking or just of the whole crew? Or Yeah. Yeah, and let me summarize the question and then you make sure and make sure I'm understanding. Uh, a question of balance. Where's the balance? A, the balance of responsibility. We know that, that God is the God who saves and yet we have the responsibility to, to tell. And then also the balance of the church's role uh, is, is uh, making new disciples, evangelism. Is that a role of the church as a team or just of scattering and doing the role of evangelism? Am I I on track with that? And that's a a tremendous question, a tough question. Um, I'll give a two cents worth on it based on on Scripture. I I thought it was powerful that Jesus Christ told the disciples to go out and make disciples as a team. And I think their example all through the book of Acts is that they would gather to gain strength and to gain enthusiasm And there were key times where they would gather and they would draw the multitudes and they would share the gospel powerfully. And then there were other times where they would gather and then they would split up and they'd go all through. So um, we see a pattern of both. We see a pattern of the, the church saying, you know what, we need to be part of what's going on downtown and we need to be at the gospel meeting um, we see other times that say, you know what, I'm, I'm going in. I'm going to uh, minister at the homeless shelter. I need you to pray for me. We see uh, you guys on the, on the hockey team. We see you saying, you know what, we've got huge opportunities. We're going to go there and we're going to build friendships. So I think we see both and um, I think we need both. 
And we've already said that as a church, we need to be way better at both. Other thoughts on that? Dan, any follow-up thoughts or questions from you on that? I think just from a... And I think we could all share that it's hard that sometimes it feels like when even when you're being faithful to share the truth and it feels like it's falling on, on deaf ears, that to me has always been just such proof that, God, I, I can't do it. This has to be your spirit that awakens a, someone's dead heart. And uh, I can remember driving back with a coworker and had just this unbelievable opportunity that the Lord laid into my lap to express clearly the gospel. And, and you know, I thought, well, Lord, this is so obvious that you're going to make this person just believe because when, it, when have you ever given me this kind of chance where they're asking all of the questions that someone that was seeking would, would, would ask? And, Lord, I think, by, I've, I've, I think I've been faithful to tell them the true gospel, and yet there was just, it was, the response was, oh, well, well that's nice. <laughs> And it was just so obvious that it has to be the Lord that saves. And uh, I think sometimes as, as followers, maybe, I don't know if it's motivation of, of pride or just really wanting it to happen, but a lot of times we get in the way of, of that and we start to rely on, our, on ourselves when it has really nothing to do with ourselves. It has to be a miracle of, the, of, of God's Spirit to open up a, a dead heart. Matthew has kind of a story of that, too, from last night. Um, if you could share that, and then I'll give editorial. Sure. <laughs> so I did a wedding ceremony yesterday for unsaved folks. Um, I'd say there's probably about five, maybe six believers out of about 150 people. And um, so I was, I was up there, and I already told the couple, you know, the deal is, is I'll officiate for you because we're good friends, but I get to give the gospel. They're fine with that. And I'm standing in front of all these crowd of unsaved people, and I'm about to read the gospel, and I just think to myself, man, am I going to make some people mad? Because this is their wedding, not mine. And I just thought, eh, I'll do it anyway. And uh, I think the Lord used it. Um, I think that was the Holy Spirit kind of just nudging me in. But then uh, at the reception, and I honestly um, don't know if this lady was honestly interested, um, possibly inebriated, possibly confused. I'm not sure. Very old lady who I do not know. Um, family member of some kind of, of the couple came up and just asked me really clearly. She basically said, I'm an old lady, and uh, so I'd kind of like to make sure I go I go up and not down. So is there like a point system, or how does this work? And so I got to really clearly share the gospel with her, and she just kind of said, okay, and just walked away. Uh, so I, I have no idea if the Lord's going to use that or not. I don't know if that was positive or negative, but um, the Lord gave me the opportunity at least to share the gospel. And then, um, like Benji said, it's in the Lord's hands. You know, I, I'm not the one who's going to save anyone. And that was just a powerful, to your question about the balance of what's our responsibility, what's his responsibility, or what's God's responsibility. And that was, that's such a cool example because literally it's totally up to him. We have no idea. Uh, we know that God says that his word will not return void. We also know that the gospel can be uh, seed, as, as the scripture tells us, and it can be sprinkled on ground, and some of that ground is fertile, and the seed takes hold and grows. That exact same seed can fall on stony ground. That exact same seed can be stolen by the devil, uh, as birds were, were symbolized in that parable. So um, it's just powerful that uh, the same gospel, we need to be faithful to, to share it 
lovingly, consistently, and then the literally the Lord will use it in, in so many different ways, some to uh, true salvation, some to um, condemnation for later, but God will use it. It will not return void. So, Great question, Dan. Lots more to talk about on it. Other questions? That's a really, really great question. And we need to start with that point about how we know uh, in our translation that the the translation openly admits that verses 9 through 20 are not found in that original. So with that theme, where I approached that, Mary Ellen, was try to go to other scripture and see which of those things were specifically backed up and which were not. We know that Christ openly told his disciples that they would have power to cast out demons. I think there's all kinds of scripture that teaches that that's a real issue. I don't understand all the context of it and when and if and how, but that's real. That's biblically grounded. Uh, We know that uh, in Acts that the Spirit of God came on the followers and they spoke in other tongues. And that was used as a glorifying activity for God's purpose. That's biblical. That's real. That's authentic. Um, Is that still happening? I can't tell you. I don't know. Um, There's all kinds of thoughts on that, uh, whether that uh, miraculous working of God still happens or whether it doesn't. Um, I'm putting him on the spot, but maybe we could ask Dr. Frank sometime privately on the mission field. Has he he seen examples of the Lord miraculously doing anything at that point? So all kinds of questions there. The, um, The other one that I struggled with, and correct me if anybody else knows otherwise. I could not find anywhere else in the Gospels or Scriptures where the handling of snakes or the drinking of poison was reinforced. I couldn't find any other Scripture that talks about that being a a godly practice. It's interesting, there's a TV show, I think it's A&E, that talks about followers of Christ that actually take that literally. I, I could find no other backing from Scripture where that was going to be um, a practice that Christ wanted his followers. So my personal opinion is I don't necessarily dive into that as as an authentic way that God would ask us to uh, honor him by handling serpents or drinking poison. Um, but all the others, were there, what were the other ones in there? Uh, laying on of hands. We certainly see that uh, in James. Elders uh, are encouraged to do that. And... One thing about snakes is Acts 28. Uh, It says, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself onto his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He was going to die from that snake bite. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. So... So maybe not, maybe not, a, maybe not a purposeful issue. I think is what this is. So yeah, explain yeah. that. Have give more shot. So so just a thought that if this if these verses were added later, they were added by those who knew things like this already. So so this happened, then someone later added this the, these sorts of notes to to Mark saying, well I saw these things. In Christians, I saw I saw a Christian get poisoned and he survived because the Lord saved him. And I saw a Christian get bit by a snake, and so they added that in there. So maybe there's some truth to it, but not that we should go handle snakes 
in worship to God in some way, um, is my opinion. And I'll just add one thing that um, just the concept of miracles, um, you know, healings and speaking in tongues and, and all these things that we don't see anymore, quote unquote, see anymore. Um, I have a very strong opinion about it, and it's that um, they aren't needed where we are right now. So in this country, in this culture, we have two things. We have men who know the scripture and can teach them, and we have the scripture. Um, in places, and we, we find um, and a, lot of, a lot of really interesting text and a lot of really interesting um, documentation about missionary work in third world countries and um, even hundreds of years ago in, in countries where there weren't these two things, we see a lot of documentation on miracles. And even now, um, you know, we always like to hear the stories about missionaries in, in, in new places, and they seem to have these crazy experiences, right? Um, I highly recommend the book Heavenly Man. Uh, it's about the Christians in China when they were after the Boxer Rebellion. Um, all the Christians were kicked out or killed. And it's about the, those who became Christians on their own there, essentially, um, through even just through a couple pages of the Bible. And they experienced these crazy, crazy miracles. I mean, straight out of Acts miracles. And, um, and then they stopped experiencing them. And the Christians um, in that book explained that their opinion was, we don't need them anymore. We have men who understand and can teach, and we have Bibles. So why would we need miracles? There's no, there's no reason to have them. Um, but still, you know, we'll still hear about miracles happening in places where those two things don't exist. So that's my opinion about it, if hopefully that helps. One more principle, I think, that comes out, Mary Ellen, with that question. That's, that's powerful and, and was reminded when Matthew was saying, uh, one principle of studying Scripture is to be careful to separate the narrative from the didactic, meaning there are going to be uh, things recorded in Scripture that are narrative, meaning they're an accurate representation of what happened. Then there are other passages of Scripture that are didactic. They're teaching. They're telling you and me what to do. And we need to be careful about separating those two. And I thought Matthew did a great job. Whether or not uh, that part of Acts 16 is, is inspired, not inspired, his point is is that it very well could be narrative. It could be a, a statement of what had happened, that this will happen and it did happen. We see in Acts. That was a great point. But make sure that we always seek to separate um, the narrative from the teaching. What happened versus what is God telling us to do through these passages. So, Other questions? Thanks for sharing those thoughts. That was a great start. Uh, special thanks to those who piped up. Um, Matthew's working hard with uh, Brett and Benj, who are going to kind of help work together to oversee the, the teaching time. And they're going to be working hard on ideas of how to make these kind of times more and more and more impactful. So understand, fair to say, there's, there's something like this to, to come. And again, be reminded that it's going to depend on you um, as the church fam to really make them profitable. So 